Right now in America, one in 10 people are currently in recovery from drug or alcohol addiction. And of those, some 50 to 90% will relapse at some point in their lives. Because of the power of addiction, many of them may never regain their recovery. Hi, I'm Ron Chapman. I'm an alcoholic with nearly three decades of sustained sobriety. If there's one thing I know about substance abuse recovery, it's that recovery is always a work in progress. Progressive recovery is a commitment to continuously moving forward every day to strengthen one's recovery. Recovery isn't just about learning how to not use. It's about the willingness to tackle the underlying issues that trigger using in the first place. Welcome to Progressive Recovery. People sharing stories from their daily fight for sobriety. really interesting experience back in April of this year. My sister and I had joined our dad, Ron, at the Deo Valente Goals Retreat for Women in Recovery out in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And on the first night we were there, Ron told his story. And you're going to hear a lot of that story today. And I'm not going to spoil it for you, but by the end of it, my sister and I had tears streaming down our face and we were caught completely off guard, but not in a bad way. And that brings me to where we are right now, because that story is a lot about amends and the forgiveness that comes with it and the inner work that we encroach upon when we become sober. So today I am leading the interview. My guest is Ron, who you might remember as current or previously the interviewer. Ron, how are you? I'm good. It's a little weird, but that's all right. It is a little weird, but I think it's really important that we sit down and we really talk about kind of our relationship and amends and all of the different emotional things that kind of come together with it. And that has brought us here now where I call you my dad and we have what I think is a really excellent relationship. Yeah, me too. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your story? Okay. I'll try and do it as a short format. Truth of the matter is Natalie, that I'm, I'm what's typically referred to as a high bottom drunk. That doesn't mean that my insides weren't dying. It means that I hadn't lost a lot of stuff as a result of alcoholism. Interestingly enough, when I got sober, I did start losing things. I lost a marriage. I lost a career. uh, I lost uh, a fair amount of my mental health as a result of it. So I paid a steep price at that point. But what got me there, I got sober at the age of 29, fairly young by some standards, What got me there was the fact that I started drinking at a really early age, as best I can recall at about 13, punctuated by my first adventure, which ended up with me face down in a cedar bush, puking my guts out, throwing up cheap wine, which seemed like a wonderful experience at the time, which (laughs) says a lot about about my future, doesn't it? And and despite the fact that I had a, a, a... an, an obviously dysfunctional relationship to alcohol from from the very first time I drank. I pursued it because, as we often hear people say, was true for me. It, it, it made it okay for, for me to be who I was. I was very ill at ease with myself, uh, what in the recovery rooms they might call restless, irritable, and discontented, although I didn't know that at the time. All I know was it was really hard being me, and alcohol took the edge off. I grew up in what we would typically label a normal family. There was some history of alcoholism in the family, and so no big surprise there. But 
I kept my grades up, stayed mostly out of trouble, succeeded, achieved, etc. But in the background was always the alcohol. I managed to get to college before anything really wacky started happening. And it was in college that things really began to show themselves, including a friend having to carry me home out of a snowbank during a blizzard because I was too drunk to be able to walk. Another occasion of wrecking my car while clearly driving under the influence. Another occasion shortly thereafter of watching a mailbox roll over the front of my truck because I was driving drunk with a cup of coffee in one hand, a burger in the other, steering with my knee. And uh, we're just really lucky that wasn't a human or, or something else. So a number of those got a good job coming out of college despite the alcoholism, cleaned it up for a little while very quickly after I was in employment with private sector employer, the alcoholism came back. Uh, it was then that I began to suffer the most humiliating part, which is loss of control of my bodily functions while drinking, which sounds very highfalutin for a guy who peed in all kinds of places in ways that were really quite shaming at the time. That continued for a while. I got married. Hey, boy, I, I could probably do a whole interview on my first wife just because there were so many curious things going on there. But the long and short was that the alcoholism blew that marriage up. And she left me at the age of 29, which was what drove me into sobriety because I was devastated that my life was falling apart despite all my hard work, good education, lots of smarts. And honestly, Natalie, I was quite surprised to find out I was alcoholic. I did not see it coming despite the evidence on the outside. Well, I think as a society, we tend to view an alcoholic as somebody who lives in a gutter. You can tell who they are. You know, on The Simpsons, it's Barney who was always, you know, incapacitated. So we've actually talked to a lot of very high-functioning alcoholics who've had that same surprising realization. Yeah, and, and there are plenty of people who really do hit the skids, no question about it. That just didn't happen to be my story. And, you know, they, they had to tell me early on, Natalie, that I needed to, I needed to not compare my story because I'd hear that. I mean, to hear somebody tell the story of, you know, killing someone when they were just 17 years old and in the prison and, you know, hard drugs and... And I would always say to myself, well, I'm not that bad. But that kind of is a nice denial mechanism, so I didn't have to deal with the reality that when I finally wrestled with it, it was really apparent where my train was headed, and they call that the alcoholic doom curve. Uh, it was just really hard to see. We're going to fast forward about six years, because six years into your sobriety is when you met my mother, yeah. which is why I now call you dad. And the reason that's so important is because I think there's this perception that amends making is only for the things that you did when you were drunk. But in this case, we're talking about amends that came long after you stopped drinking and to people that you met well after you achieved sobriety. Yeah, and I, to be really honest, I immediately felt the feelings in my body about that because this is probably the most painful start of, part of my recovery story. So I was five years sober when I met your mom. And just for the record, still love your mom to this day. We talk about that all the time. Just can't be married to her. That's a probably another story. And she came with two kids, you and your sister, Brianne, uh, 10 and 8 at the time. And I was, yeah, let's just say I was ill-prepared for parenting, <laughs> I was just, which was a surprise to me. I was a capable guy, good career, good education, sober five years and thinking, man, I got this together. But my goodness, I was ill-prepared. And 
I was so busy trying to impress your mom in so many ways that I think I totally overlooked how this was going to play out. I just assumed I'd be able to be a parent. And um, <laughs> the, the way the story goes from there is, so here I am, I'm five years sober, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing all the recovery work that's common for people in recovery, and I'm doing some therapeutic work. And in fact, your mom and I were smart enough, we got a family therapist to work with us because we knew it was a blended family and we'd have some challenges. And about 18 months, as best I recall, into that marriage, I started emotionally abusing you and your sister. Uh, oftentimes, I've had people try and talk me away from that phrase. I, I think that in part is because we've so normalized the fact that parents, especially parents in recovery, do some pretty problematic things. But it's it's honest truth. And what was going on there was I, I felt so inept. I was so conflicted about my relationship to you and your sister relative to my relationship with your mom. No matter how hard I tried, I seemed to screw things up and had no tolerance for my screw-ups. And in short, I think the way I would define that emotional abuse is I was way too hard on you and your sister. Give us some examples, because you use the phrase emotional abuse a lot. I see you use it, or I hear you use it quite a bit in seminars, public speaking engagements, but you rarely provide an example, and frequently that's what people want to know. We want, <laughs> they want to know the dirt. <laughs> they want the dirt. Yeah, so this is actually a kind of a hard one to, to, to actually pin down, but, but here's how I characterize it. I spent some time thinking about this. The one is, and probably the most important one, was I was just unable to accept you and your sister as you were. Um, I, I, I put a lot of effort into trying to make you be different. Now, in as much as I was telling you all I loved you, love doesn't include conditionality. And yet that's exactly what I was doing. I was putting conditions on my love and my support. And so I, I, I put a lot of conditions on you. I had a lot of expectations I foisted upon you. The parts where I think it really gets problematic is when I really begin to translate how hard I was on you, is I punished you and your sister. I punished you vigorously under the guise of good parenting. Um, I came down way too hard on you all. You all would make a mistake. And I, I mean, I don't know if it qualified as brutal, only you can speak to that. But boy, it was unfair. It was harsh. It was punitive. Uh, I don't know I ever crossed the line into mean-spiritedness, but, but you know, this was not—the challenge here is, is that, I mean, our culture, like, thinks this is normal. Oh, I, I whacked my kid because I was trying to show him I loved him and keep him out of trouble. It's like, it's abuse. Telling your kid their deficiencies because you're uncomfortable with them is, is emotionally abusive. We're supposed to love our kids. And I've been told I have this unrealistic standard. Well, all parents do this. Well, that doesn't make it right. I'm supposed to be the adult there, mistreating you, punishing you unduly, coming down too hard on you, being hypercritical of you, um, uh, doing things to spite you when I get resentful, even though I'm supposed to be the adult in the room. Uh, <laughs> and we laugh at times about how I would conveniently every Saturday morning vacuum outside your room way too early in the morning because I, I resented that you were still in bed and I was up and working. And so and I this was like, at like 7 a.m. It wasn't know, like I 10. I know. And, and, you know, I mean, it's just as much as I'm empathetic to all the parents who feel like this is just normal stuff, let's be honest. This is not nurturance. 
And so if the standard we apply to parenting or love is to be nurturing, I was the antithesis of nurturing. Um, and it came out in many, many ways. At the same time, I mean, I showed up. I coached your softball teams, and I showed up at all your stuff at school. So I was, I was a willing parent, but some of my interaction because of my inadequacies was, was far short of what any child needs and deserves. And as a result, it had serious implications for you and your sister, and I'm not unaware of that. It's really interesting how different perspectives are, because my sister and I would always regard you as, oh, yeah, Ron's a hard ass. Ron's really strict. But I look back and I realize that there were times that we were really more willing to lie. And we're not deceptive people, but we were much more comfortable with lying than telling you the truth because we were so afraid of what the consequences were from the truth. Right. And while you were never physically abusive, you could sure tell a mean lecture <laughs> in the doorway of our bedrooms or we had no escape route. <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, that, that's, that's just not right. It just isn't right. And I, like every other parent there's ever been, we hide behind the I love you, I'm responsible for you mantra. When in fact, what we're doing is we're just perpetuating on you all what perhaps was perpetuated on us and has become culturally normalized. Pia Melody, who does a bunch of work in relationship addiction, said that, that, that children know in their bodies when they're being nurtured. And they know in their bodies when they're not being nurtured. And the absence of nurturance is the greatest predictor of future life challenges. That's hard information if you intend to be a parent. But one of the reasons I always talk about this is because I know that there are people in recovery who are doing things that are causing bad outcomes for their kids, their loved ones. And we need to talk about it. We need to stop hiding behind a convenient, convenient explanation that it's because we love you, mm -hmm. when in fact it is the antithesis of love. Which has been really, I think, one of the themes of our relationship once you divorced my mother. And this is one of the things I tell my friends because, you know, divorce, oh, that's terrible, that's bad, what a failure. Except for the minute you and my mom split up, our relationship changed overnight. <laughs> it did. I mean, it, uh, and so as, as chagrined as I am to say this, I mean, that was part of what we would call the amends. The only way I could get things right with you and your sister was to change the fundamental relationship with your mom because it couldn't work. That's not to blame her for anything. It's simply to acknowledge that the way I had of interacting with her was not sufficiently functional and um, had dire consequences for you and your sister. So uh, it, it's funny because we, we always hear people talk about, oh, it's like, well, you know, I made peace with my wife. And it's like, no, in this case, I needed, I needed a divorce. And it changed everything. It took the pressure off created some distance. You were how old when? I was a sophomore in college. Yeah, and Brian was a senior, senior in high school. school. And, and so it was a difficult, difficult time. But here's where this, you know, what I like to refer to as living an amended life comes in, which is really what I think we're here to talk about. I mean, there's the, what people classically think about amends, which is, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make restitution for the things I stole, I'm going to apologize for the crappy things I did. I'm going to try and make broken relationships right. Uh, yeah, I'm going to clean up my affair. And, and that's all great stuff. I mean, it takes away the guilt that causes people with addictions to, to, to drink or to drug or whatever else they do. So, so that's a great starting point. And then sometimes you'll hear people talk about living amends. <laughs> that's things like my favorite one, because we were chatting about this beforehand. My favorite one is um, for me to be a 
great ex-husband for your mom. Which is a weird role to play, yeah, actually. Very strange. No, no one ever says, I want to be an amazing ex-spouse. Right. right. But there was, enough, there was enough trouble when we were married, and I own that. Again, not to find fault with anybody else. But she doesn't need a crappy ex-husband. And if I'm going to, if I'm going to have a living amend, I need to operate in a way so that, so 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 that I don't perpetrate anything on her as my ex-wife. The beauty of that is we've got a great relationship. Yeah, people are surprised to know that she was out here in Atlanta over your birthday, <laughs> and the four of us with my husband went out to dinner and had just a lovely time. It was, and we did some uh, some heartfelt reminiscent of tears in my eyes because that was in some ways, I still have a photo around here somewhere of a very early in our marriage where you and Brianne are pretty young, and it's, 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 it's an idyllic memory. So there's so much sweetness there that has been able to, to, to be held in place because it hasn't turned out badly as so many divorces do. So, so that's a living amend. I mean, maybe a more practical example of a living amend is I stole a lot of money when I was young, and I have no idea how, how to make restitution for people I stole from. It's just a consequence of having to get money for alcohol and other things and dishonesty. And, and, and so uh, a, a living amend that I have is I tip generously everywhere I go. And where the service is really good, I'm extremely generous. Well, I'm paying back, which I will continue to do, hopefully, for the rest of my life. And, and more importantly, as part of that, I, I put a lot of effort into recognizing those service people because I was so guilty of being so self-centered that I, I basically was oblivious to how I affected others. And so I'm deliberately intending to pay attention to people and to be generous with them, to make right something that I that I did when I was a much younger man. And it's kind of like a way of living for me now. It's interesting that you say that because often people look at the 12 steps like, oh, I'm done with the steps, now what? <laughs> Whereas, in fact, it's an ongoing process, especially with amends. So when I mentioned earlier, making amends isn't just to who you hurt when you were drunk. It's an ongoing process for the rest of your life. Yeah, You've touched on that now. Tell me a little bit more about how you work the amends portion of the 12 steps now. Well, today in what I call progressive recovery, which is why we're here, I actually refer to it now as living an amended life, which means for me to be different than how I was, not just behaviorally, but because all of the stuff on our outsides is a mirror of our insides to clean up the insides through the step work, through the therapeutic work that I have needed. And for the record, at last count, uh, I've got 14 years of therapy under my belt in addition to 30 years not drinking. So <laughs> I've, I've required a lot of intervention. And so this living an amended life, I, I may have to, I've got to say a little bit about that. And I'll, I'll try to see if I can contextualize this with, with you and Brianne, because this is really the heart of what you heard me tell the story about at, at the Outer Banks. The number one, and this is probably strong medicine for all of us, especially for me, though, what I realized as I have continued to do this recovery work is that I'm unable to accept people the way they are. And I have feelings about that because I'm painfully aware with you and Brianne that, that a big part of our conflict, my lack of nurturance, was that I was fundamentally unable to accept you the way you are. 
Um, we tell funny stories about how you came from the factory without a math download. And <laughs> I was just insistent that I was going to teach you math. And, and it was not helpful. I mean, at worst, it was abusive. It was absolutely not helpful. Uh, I didn't know that at the time. It was, I mean, I guess I should say this. Someone's going to say this. The, it was the best. I, I, I did the best I could. That's true. But that does not mean it's sufficient for children. Doing the best you can is noble. If it misses the mark, we need to be honest that it misses the mark, which is a high standard. But in order to accept you the way you are, I have got to deal with my own fears and my own inadequacies because I project them. So let me be really practical. All right. So, so you're unable to take care of your chores when you're 15 years old. Well, I'd love to tell you that I disciplined you because I cared about you. The truth of the matter is I disciplined you because it was a painful thing I would have to deal with if you didn't. And at worst, I would force you to do things like the way you and your sister say at one point, I made you all cut some grass with scissors. I think that's a slight exaggeration. But... It's actually not. We had, a, we had a huge yard with a lot of grass and a lot of fruit trees but we owned a push mower, like the old 1950s yeah. rotating blade, and a pair of trimming shears instead of a weed whacker. <laughs> so I was out there every Saturday when I was like in the eighth grade using the push right. mower and then trimming by hand around all those fruit trees with hand clippers instead of a weed whacker. It would take me all day. Well, and, 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 and you know, we'll put this in context because it's important. I mean, sure, that develops some discipline and so forth in you. But, but the fact that I was doing it to punish you so I wouldn't be inconvenienced isn't justifiable under any circumstance. It just isn't. Um, it's not fair to do that to any child any time. Which again, high standard, but you know, if you say you love your kids, if you say you love others, punishing them for being who they are just doesn't meet any standard I can think of. So there's this this need to accept, accept people exactly as they are, because uh, they really are being the very best they know how to be, um, which I know flies in the face of conventional wisdom, but I'll put it this way, and I'll, again, well, I'll use everybody in this. There are very few people who roll out of bed on this particular morning with a plan for creating devastation in the world. You know, 7 billion people, close to 7 billion people woke up today with a plan to do the best they could. And they fall short and we screw up and we make mistakes and we hurt people and we do awful things, but it's not because we intend to do badly. So that means that accepting you on the terms of who you are just means I'm acknowledging you're doing the very best you know how. And what keeps me from being able to do that is my own fears and my own inadequacies, my own lack of forgiveness for myself. So acceptance is a starting point. What goes hand in hand with that is I have got to learn how to take care of my own needs. One of the things that I realized I did with a lot of those expectations, and I know they had benefits to you and your sister. I mean, I, I get it that some of that worked out really well. That's a testament to you, I think. But every time I have an expectation of you, it means I'm not taking care of my own needs, and I have no right to ask anybody else to take care of my needs. At worst, that becomes conditionality. And so I've got to deal with my own expectations, and I've got to figure them out. I still remember when this first came up, you know, uh, my longtime sponsor and mentor, Sam, the first time we talked about this, I said, well, what's the point of being in a relationship if you can't ask them to meet your needs? And he said, well, that's a really wonderful question, isn't it, Ron? 
because most of us go into relationships or the basis of our relationships is what they can do for us. That's called self-centeredness. Love means no, I love you the way you are. Again, seems like a hopeless standard, but we need to stop lying to ourselves. Thinking that it's your job to make me happy is, is the cause of much mischief. So I had to do this work of cleaning up my expectations. Today, here's the funny one. That I, <laughs> it's like, I expect you to be consistent with who Natalie is. And I am never disappointed in you. That's, that's an amazing thing to hear. And I don't think people get told enough by their loved ones that very line, that I'm never disappointed in you. In fact, we use that word disappointed as a weapon now. Like, oh, I'm not mad at you. I'm disappointed with you. <laughs> right, because I love you. <laughs> yes. I expect better of you. Yeah. And that's about our expectations. That is not about love. Right. Uh, and, and it's a strong medicine. Uh, I mean, it works really well, but it is really hard because then you have to own your own reality. It's like, well, the reason I'm frustrated with Natalie or Brienne or Person X or anybody else, the reason I'm frustrated has nothing to do with them. It has to do with my expectations, and I've got to clean those up. Hopefully, to the degree that I heard this recently, I loved it, to the degree that my expectations are valid, for example, expecting you to be Natalie, which you do a fine job of doing, I might add, I can accept you because my expectations are in alignment with you. Works really well. No disappointment, no, fr well, occasional frustration because I got to keep cleaning. I mean, this is an active process. I'm not done. Uh, we're never done. Right. And then there's like a third piece to this uh, living an amended life, the third and the last, which is I have to make a really overt decision about who I want to be with you. And I've made the decisions. Well, actually, I, I got lucky on this one. Um, I'd love to claim some credit, but Sam and I had talked a lot about it at the time that I split with your mom. And I told you and your sister both that I had come to love you and that I was committed to supporting you, at least through college. And fortunately, that proved to be true because I've been able to stay true to making the decision to support you. Here's, here's, the, here's the punchline. No matter what. Right. No matter what. And, and I'll point out for audience that you and my mom split up 15 years ago, and you're still here. Yeah. You're still showing up. I still call you my dad. It confuses a lot of people. They don't fully understand the nature of our relationship, but it's true. You are my dad. You did the raising. We've gone through the gauntlet, if you will, you know, walked through the fire, come out on the other side with a completely different relationship where for all intents and purposes, like you are my dad and we have a really good relationship because while you've been doing the amends work, I've also been doing the forgiveness work and a lot of my own amends work for being such a pain in the butt when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that, it, that's beautiful, Natalie, because as I think about it, when I, can, when I can live in an amended way, when my insides, this is not about behavior, it's about my insides, my ability to be clean on my insides creates a space that you can get your own work done, your own healing work, which is really important because you got damaged by this. You and your sister got damaged. So did your, so did your mom. By holding this space, this amended life space, it lets people do their own healing work, their own forgiveness work, deal with whatever they need to. Your sister, who I'm sure will be amused when, I, when she hears this, uh, she was in film school. And I still remember the day when we were we were mixed up in something. I was still trying to learn how to live in an amended way. And your sister looks at me and she says, you know, you need to know that I have a life plot. Yeah. 
What's up with that, B? There's not a role for you in that plot I'm playing out right now. And I have to admit, I had to deal with my disappointment at that moment because I thought there was a place. For, and there is in some other ways, but she hit me with, she hit me with the take-home. The take-home was, every time you insert yourself into my plot, the plot goes awry. <laughs> it's like, it's really the truth, right? When we right. stick ourselves into other people's lives in inappropriate ways, we screw up their path. And then we have to clean up all this stuff. So living an amended life is this way of, of staying out of Al-Anon has this great phrase that they use, which makes great sense. Al-Anon says we have to remember regardless of what's going on with our loved one. We didn't cause it. We cannot cure it. But if we are not mindful of our own insides, our own behavior, we will contribute to it in a negative way. And the hardest thing in the world for most people in recovery, as I have observed it, including myself, is to own my own reality that I can't blame Natalie for a bad outcome. Natalie may have contributed to it. The bad outcome is about my reaction to it, not the facts. And I got to own that because I'm the one who's creating it. This amended living standard, this living an amended life, is a, is a way of being in the world that allows my conduct to be extremely effective. That's the huge payoff. There are some... I guess if I'm really, really honest, <laughs> here come those feelings. One of the things I have struggled with my entire sobriety is feeling like I have lived up to whatever it is my potential might be. And Sam and I have talked about it a lot of times. And what I will usually say is there's a whole lot of things that seem like they've been useful to others and maybe they have. I don't know. I really don't know. But the one, here's, here's the feelings, the one place I feel like I hit the mark is with you and Brianne, is that I, I managed to be something, these steps cleaned me up enough inside that I've been able to be the man that I had the potential to be in relationship to you and her. And um, that's magical. It's just magical. Um, far beyond, far beyond anything I thought was possible for me. And sometimes you and she will say things where I say to myself, my goodness, what a, okay, what a fucking miracle. <laughs> Just unbelievable. Um, and, and then the neat part happens, which is that this amended way of living goes beyond this relationship and other people experience it because, because I walk the world without foisting myself upon people. I can accept them the way they are. I don't have expectations of them. I can own my own reality. And, and in addition to that, I can decide how I want to play with regard to them. And so I get feedback in the world that I play in where people say I'm the most non-judgmental person they've ever met. And this is when we're doing difficult, difficult work, both professionally and in the recovering community. And you just go, my God, that is remarkable. What a what an incredible outcome for someone who statistics would say should it should have ended up dead in a gutter drunk. Yeah. Just a, just an amazing outcome. Well, when we, when we use the phrase progressive recovery, this is what we're talking about, where your recovery didn't end. You know, you met my mom several years after achieving sobriety, and here we are 25 years later, you're still in recovery. And to some extent, even though I've never had a physical addiction, 
I'm in recovery too, because I see what these steps have done for you. And in my part, working on the forgiveness piece, and it's created a really wonderful relationship that I would not have known otherwise. Yeah. And, and part of what's fun for me to watch, I've never told you this, it's neat to see how that has now found its way into your marriage. Absolutely. Because yeah. I, I talk a lot about, you know, I can be hard on my husband, but I don't want to be that person. So this is where I go back to my making amends, loving him just the way he is. Those were our vows. I vow to love you just the way you are and just the way you are not, which it turns out is very broad as we're, <laughs> as we're exploring. Um, early on, we use it as a weapon. Like, oh, you said you take me exactly as I am, you know, being a total self-centered pain in the butt. And now we're kind of working through that. But this work has prepared me for my marriage yeah. and for relationships with colleagues and students and friends. And it means you get to have a more meaningful relationship, which is yeah. extremely rewarding. You know, the... The, the, I had two really important indicators for me that this living and amended life was, was working. One was when you called and asked me to perform the wedding ceremony, um, which I'd love to say I'm a minister, but the truth of the matter is I have an online certificate that yes. says I can do these. Anybody can do it. Uh, but I mean, how cool is that? That you know, Let me just put it in real simple terms. That uh, So I emotionally abused you more than what was fair, certainly, if any could be. Um, and yet here it was many years later that I'm, I'm, as I think your words were, that I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely the right person to perform the ceremony. And that's like, wow, how is that? And wow. And then Brianne called me just about the same time and said, said, thank you for being a very safe parent today. Mm -hmm. I thought, my goodness, this is like a remarkable outcome. And and I'm not done, right? Because right. it's like both with you and your sister. I mean, the world, I bump into people. They frustrate me. They exasperate me. It's like, okay, one more time. I've got more growth to do here. Ultimately leading up to what I think is the highest standard of all. I was, I was sitting with a group of people in a recovering community one day. And somebody said, the standard I hold myself today is whether or not I'm acting as a loving human being everywhere. And I thought, wow, can I claim that? And the honest answer is no. But if love is, in fact, what we aspire to, if that's one of those things, including being sober, then, then there's more work to be done because I still get in my own way and I still have human realities. And, and I guess I should say this. Some who are listening are thinking, my goodness, this is far more than I want for my recovery. It's like, great. I mean, if you can just not drink and kill people driving your car, I mean, that's a, that's a great outcome. I mean, I'm not... I'm not setting in judgment of anyone and where they are in their respective recoveries, but there is so much more that opens up what I call the launching pad, which I know you've heard me talk about, where there's, there's so much possibility if we continue on this progressive path of cleaning up our insides, as, as Nathan said in the last session we did, uh, clearing the channel, right? Clearing the channel so that this bounty of joy and well-being this can pour through us call it grace for those of you who have a religious orientation and to the degree that i can clean myself up so that that stuff can make it through me magical things happen and it, i guess i should bring it back to really practical stuff because if it's possible to stay in a an amended life i won't ever have to think about drinking again ever that's the payoff. The big payoff is I don't ever have to go back to that if I can keep these insights clean and keep living in a progressively recovered fashion. Right. 
Which goes back to, you know, the addiction is not about, oh, I just don't have any willpower. It's about I'm using it as a cure-all for all this other really challenging emotional work. Because who wants to face the fact that they could be the problem? <laughs> yeah, honest answer, not any one of us, apparently. Oh, we really no. want... Uh, Sam says, uh, Sam, sponsor, mentor, longtime friend, he says, happiness is knowing who to blame because then <laughs> we're off the hook. <laughs> it's like, except there's no solution there because bring it back to ground zero here because you were never to blame. My reaction to you was to blame and that needed cleaning up. So too with your sister and countless others. So going back to the, the goals retreat back in the spring, Brianne was with me. We had no idea that Ron was going to tell the story. We're in a room with at least 100 other women, all of whom are in re recovery or in Al-Anon. And he tells a story about his marriage to our mother, you know, being an emotionally abusive father, and how he's been making amends. And neither of us had ever heard it before, and neither of us were prepared for it. But since then, and it's only been a few months since then, even that act of making amends publicly with us has had a huge bearing on our relationship with you. And we've done a lot of really important work since then from that one event. And the rest of the weekend, we kept getting approached by people who just could not believe that that could happen, that we could have that kind of relationship with you, that you could have that kind of relationship with our mother, that something beautiful could come out of divorce. It just seems so like, is he, is he telling the truth? Did that really happen? We're like, well, yeah, we're here now, aren't we? Yeah. So, you know, that birthday that you alluded to just a, just a few weeks ago when we're, when your mom was here in Atlanta and, uh, there was a, there was a moment when I was sitting at the table and, and you and your husband were on one side and she and I were sitting on the other side. And there was a moment where all I could feel was joy. That's all. That was it. Just, um, we're just sitting there. We're just talking. We're having the time of our life. I'm um, sitting amongst people. I've somehow or another figured out how to love. And he goes, well, there's like no downside. Um, and, and yet it's entirely surprising because we don't often enough have that experience, do we? No, not at all. Yeah. Hmm. Thank you so much, Ron. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Progressive Recovery, which is available at progressiverecovery.org and on iTunes.